Hi, I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. I have a bittersweet relationship to the city. I love it and at the same time I have a little bit of anger. Having love for the place that you come from isn't about showcasing an unrelenting sense of pride, ignoring the bad and blindly celebrating the good. It's about caring enough to highlight its flaws so it can evolve and become better. As Rich as the King is a story of Casablanca, the largest city in Morocco. The novel focuses on the fictional character of Sarah, a 16-year-old French teenager. Throughout, we watch as Sarah falls victim to the inequality of a patriarchal system run by a monarchy. Originally written in French, Abigail Assour's novel is now being translated into six languages, including English, and I am delighted to say that she's my guest today. Chapter 1. No Room for a Hero Sarah is poor, but at least she's French, which allows her to attend Casablanca's elite high school for expats and wealthy locals. It's there that she first lays eyes on Driss, rumoured to be the richest guy in the city. Deciding she wants a life like his, she sets out to get him. But to do that, she has to cross the gaping social divide that separates them. This novel doesn't pull its punches. It is never afraid to tackle political issues and injustices, issues that Abigail has seen firsthand. She grew up in Casablanca in the 90s, and her knowledge of the city comes screaming through via her gorgeously poetic prose. I asked her why it was so important to position Casablanca as a novel in its own right, to write so descriptively and vividly about the city, rather than focusing purely on the people. I think the the best advice that I received uh, as a writer is in French, it was donner à percevoir. In English, you would translate it as to give to perceive, to give something to perceive and to really put attention on details, on everything that can appeal to the senses for the reader. And I really see writing as also an act of generosity And to me, giving this to the reader is something that I want to do. I I always feel very grateful when I read something. I I love Flaubert, for example, and I always feel very grateful when I read a very precise description of, I don't know, a lake, a scene, anything. So, yes, writing uh, as precisely as possible was very important to me. And I think the, the main reason I wanted to write Casablanca that way was that I, as a woman, I was not allowed to live and explore the city as I wanted to. I really felt that I lived in Casablanca behind the window of my room and I saw the city behind that window. And it was maybe a revenge for me to explore the city through literature I didn't get to do that as a woman and I did it by writing. So it was important to me to do it, to do it that way. You've also created a central character, a heroine, if you like, who is female. And I was often very conflicted reading Sarah because part of me wanted to say to her, you know, this is a fairy tale, right? You know it, you know, things don't, won't end up the way you think they will, will do. But in a way, she has to go on that journey of discovery herself. She has to learn the hard way. But she was 
she struck me as someone who's fiercely intelligent and incredibly strong. And she has realized that she has an opportunity to climb the social ladder. And yet when that happens to people, what they learn, which is what she learns, is that actually money won't necessarily make you happy. And society has a way of keeping people like you down and in your place, which is really what you're trying to say about Casablanca, isn't it? Yes. And also, Sarah is a, is a complex character. People sometimes love her. People hate her, too. I didn't want to write her as a hero. I I like characters when they're not perfect, where they, when they have flaws, when they don't make the right choices. And Sarah is very naive. She's also a, a teenager. She's 16. So she is very naive. And maybe she has other options, of course, but... It's already a privilege to be a feminist in this kind of society. It means right. that uh, you had the, the resources, the psychological resources, the financial resources uh, to be a feminist. Sarah doesn't have that. She has a, a mother who taught her how to survive in a very particular way because she sold her body for money. So that's the first example that Sarah had. She didn't get the, the opportunity to see that she has other options. So she can be uh, complex, she can be um, particular in her way of approaching, uh, her way of climbing the social ladder, but that's also because she's not a hero. She's, a, she's not the exception. And when you write about an exception, uh, you tend to remember the exception afterwards. And I wanted to write about the system, so mm. I didn't want to write about a hero, but someone who was a victim of the system. Yes, I loved the mistakes that she made and I loved her flaws. I thought she was extremely interesting. And in a way, the odds are stacked so heavily against her that I think that's the reason you keep reading is because you want to see her go through this process of learning and of, and of discovery. And I, I found myself reflecting on, you know, my own views about money and status and, and social scale. And it's it's often it's it's really interesting because often when you meet people, you learn that actually money, it can solve some problems, but it can't solve, you know, every single problem. And I love reading about a world I know nothing about and then finding that actually there is familiarity in this social scale story of Casablanca. We'll come back to Sarah in a minute, but I, I want to talk about the city because I, I mentioned to you in my notes, I gave you one reference, which was Jean-Claude Izzo's Marseille trilogy, which if people listening haven't read it, it, it does a wonderful job of transporting you to Marseille. And I got the same sensation here with Casablanca. You are a writer that writes for all my senses. And I, I loved that. I could hear it. I could smell it. I could taste it. I could see it. I wanted to swim in it. it I thought it was, I, th I thought it was wonderful. How do you feel about Casablanca now having reflected on it? I, I don't want to ask you, you know, if you miss it because th that's, you could go back whenever you wanted and clearly you, you know, you've left and, and that's great. But how do you feel about Casablanca having written it with such intensity? I think I, I wrote that novel also out of love. I received some um, emails and letters from Moroccan readers telling me that I was giving a bad image of Casablanca, bad image of Morocco, that I, I didn't love my country. And actually, I think I, I really do. And loving a country is also 
never ceasing to be demanding. And I think I today how I feel about Casablanca is that through that book, I asked my city to do something else, to, do, to change the system. Mm. I have a bittersweet relationship to the city. I love it. And at the same time, I have a little bit of anger because of the um, political repression, religious repression. And to me, it was very, it was fair and it was demanding to write it as it is mm. and not show only what was uh, what is uh, beautiful about the city, but also uh, what makes me angry. And I see it as an, an act of love also. Well, both both come through, both the love and the anger and the almost call to action that you've given the city to change. My very last question to you in, in my notes, I wanted to spend a bit of time here. I've I didn't I don't know that much about you other than having read your book, but your your understanding and your ability to talk about social reality is so acutely defined that I, I wondered if at some point you had studied either philosophy or sociology because it's just that it goes beyond a skill as a writer that I, I wondered whether there was some other learning that you've done about social reality because if this has just come from your writing I mean <laughs> it is a staggeringly staggeringly big achievement but have you studied philosophy in any in any form? I did. I studied philosophy uh, during my bachelor, what was equivalent to a bachelor in France, and sociology um, of the media uh, for my master's, but that's not exactly the same. But I, I read Bourdieu when I was younger, and I think it really marked me. And somehow the novel is also a um, Bourdieuian novel, in a way. I, I think the challenge is to write fiction without explaining, with as few as um, explanation as possible, never explaining, never giving an analysis, and making sure that the ideas are conveyed through the writing and the fiction. That was the hardest part for me, to never explain, only showing and never telling what I wanted to tell, only showing through scenes, through characters, through description. But uh, I think I was very marked by Bourdieu, obviously, also in my way of seeing the world. That was a, a very important read for me. Chapter two in translation. Abigail's prose buzzes with intensity. Let me read you a passage from the book. This comes at the end of a conversation between Sarah and Driss, where Sarah reveals she doesn't have a father. The truth established itself between them like a needle blown by the wind onto a stone flagstone that no one swept up. One of many examples where the words just resonate with this beautiful intensity, so much so that I would often reread a passage to spend more time with it. But this is a novel I've read in translation, and I wondered how Abigail feels about the way it's been adapted. It's very strange to read a translation. It's actually the first time I read it as a translation because other translations were in languages that I don't speak or read. It was as if the, the book wasn't mine anymore. It was a very strange object. Sometimes I rediscovered my own sentences. And even uh, now, hearing you reading this 
phrase was very, very strange for me, very beautiful. And at the same time, a little scary because it's my words, but it's not my words anymore. It's a fascinating experience. The characters that we just spoke about, Sarah and Drew, Sarah establishes this idea very early on that Driss is the person that can lift her out of the life that she currently has. She is deeply attracted to his eyes, and you talk a lot about his eyes, but not necessarily the rest of him. I found him fascinating. I loved that it takes him a long time to do anything that Sarah wants him to do or, or likes him to do. I, I felt he was really vulnerable, and I, I wondered when you sat down and you you thought about him, he could have been lost on the page because this is Sarah's story, but he's not. And he keeps doing things that take Sarah in a completely different direction, which, which I liked. What was the inspiration for, for, for Driss? What did you want to create in terms of a foil for your central character? Driss is my favorite character. I, I love all my characters, but I, I have a, a, something very special uh, for, um, for Driss. He's, um, I wanted to write a character that was, a victim of the patriarchy, but also write someone who was trying very hard to meet the standards of masculinity. Driss really wants to become that very um, masculine man that Moroccan society asks for. He wants to do this business with America. He wants to make his father proud, but it's just not him. And I wanted to write about this little tragedy for him to not meet the standards and also show that Sarah really suffers from gender inequalities, but Dries in a way also suffers from the patriarchy. And yeah, that, that's the, the, the tragedy of this country. No one wins. It, exactly. And it's almost as if it's his relationship with Sarah that helps him realize that he that he can't win, which which I found a delight because in a way what we talked about earlier he has money he has everything he will apparently need to be successful in life and yet it's just not working for him and i found him extremely conflicted and, and vulnerable but his arc in the book via sarah is to come to the realization that actually this is not this isn't working i can't be happy so i almost need to learn that and move on to try and be happy some other some other way but yes you're right i mean that says sends such a deep message about moroccan society that actually when you think about it no one wins no one wins no yeah. it's a it's a country where when where you have to to buy your freedom and you have to buy your dignity but even when you can buy it when it's bought it's not the same and you still suffer from it because you have to keep on buying it. And yes, no one wins. Chapter three, confronting reality. Having read and understood all of the problems highlighted in this novel, I still want to visit Casablanca. What does that say about me? Abigail's prose is so powerful that I want to see it firsthand. But I'm also conflicted. I don't want to support or endorse a system that's failing so many. 
Casablanca will be beautiful. It will be chaotic. It will be one of those cities I'll probably instantly fall in love with. Something about chaos is so intoxicating to me. I felt this way twice before. Firstly, with Buenos Aires, and then with Rome. So despite all that's wrong with Casablanca, I'm still longing to go. But Abigail lived these experiences firsthand. So I wondered if she still has the same longing. When did she last go back? I was in Casablanca last May. Wow. I, I went to, to talk in, a, in my former high school about the book. I think the society is changing a lot right now. The youth is very dynamic. They talk a lot about uh, gender inequalities, social inequalities. Something is happening. It's complicated because it's a monarchy and freedom of speech obviously doesn't exist. But I feel that something is happening right now and it's a country worth visiting. You should go. I would love to go. And I will take your book. And if anybody tells me that it's not an accurate representation of Casablanca, I will tell them I don't care because I, I <laughs> you know, I, I loved um, reading it. What has the reaction been like, Abigail? Because this isn't the only translation, as you mentioned. It has been translated into several languages and is out in many, many countries. For everybody that said this isn't an accurate depiction or portrayal of Morocco there must be a hundred others that would say something completely different I'm just interested what what kind of reaction have you had to the book from Moroccan readers uh, I had mostly very positive reaction telling me that it was actually an accurate representation and a few very negative telling me things that I personally find absurd that homosexuality does not exist in Morocco, uh, abortion never happened in Morocco, there's no prostitution. And I think some citizens are still very conservative and have maybe trouble in seeing the country as it is. Their opinions are very intertwined with religion, so it makes everything very complicated. So I had a few negative reactions but never from uh, young readers, never from my generation or younger. So that made me very hopeful for the mm. country. Yes, absolutely. I can understand that because I think in any society, and I include my own in this, there are a huge number of people who do not want to confront a reality that is other or different to what we claim to be the truth. So, and that doesn't just apply to things like homosexuality, but it applies to to everything. You know, there are certain generations of people who cannot comprehend the young people of today, for example, or the way that people behave or people's sexuality or people's gender or people who just are able to say things that were never said, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And I, and I think that that really is the generation that people like you should be talking to, because in a way, you're never going to be able to change the opinions of people that are older than us. You know, for example, my parents, for example, if I think about that, they will have views that no matter what I say will not change. But the younger generation, the people that could go in any direction, those are the people that we need to be talking about. Because if we can convince them that things need to change, then they will change. But if we show them a version of Morocco that is different to the one that you have, where where we say that everything is okay, 
well, then nothing will ever get done, will it? So it's great to hear that younger people have really resonated with your book. Of course, I, I think the, the the maiden challenge is that today the um, Morocco's king is also uh, the um, commander des croyants. We say in French, it means the, um, the commandant of believers. So he also represents religion and the religion and the laws are very intertwined. So it makes many... Um, private subject of the life of an individual like sexuality, pregnancy, very um, complicated in Morocco. I hope it will change, but this um, importance of religion in the law makes it quite difficult. Absolutely. Let's finish by talking a bit more about Sarah, because I think she's a fascinating character. I want to read you another extract from your book that comes a little bit later. It's the beginning of a chapter. A boy once told her that in other places far away, the sand was velvety soft, white as clouds. He talked of seashells and the smell of salt, the music of the waves. She didn't believe him. Stop it with your bullshit, she said. I loved that because that I wasn't expecting. I wasn't expecting that. But Sarah is so interesting to me and her journey is so fascinating. As I said, I wanted to put my arm around her and tell her that like, look, this is a fairy tale, but then that would make me part of the patriarchy and the part of the part of the problem. I don't always ask this question, but I'd like to ask it now because you wrote this book. It first came out, as you said, in January 2021. It's been out a while. Um, you will have been writing it for a while. I wanted to ask if you miss Sarah. I know we're talking about her now, but do you miss spending time with her? That's a, a very important question to me. I, I really miss Sarah. And I really miss this. And when I finished the book, I was grieving. It was like losing someone. And I ended up writing Sarah and Dries a letter, uh, a goodbye letter. Oh, wow. Because, yes, I, I couldn't forget about them and I couldn't move on with my life. So I wrote them a letter. I told them that I was not abandoning them, but that I had to, to do something else and that now they they also belong to the world and then i sent that letter with no address so i don't know where it is now it helped me say goodbye but sometimes i feel that i don't want to read the book again i don't want to think too much about uh, this book because then i would become too emotional and miss them too much so i try to keep my distances so yes i, I miss them very much well, thank you for giving these two characters, in particular, Sarah and indeed Driss, we'll give him a shout out because he is your favourite character. Thank you for giving them and this book to the world. As Rich as the King is an utterly stunning novel. Abigail Assault, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Abigail Assault for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Think carefully about what you'd like your readers to remember from your book. If you want the underlying message and sense of place in your novel to be just as memorable as the characters, then you may want to avoid turning those characters into heroes, as their exceptional qualities may divert your audience's attention away from other areas. Writing a love letter to the place you grew up or the place that you're from can take many forms. It doesn't have to be a fanciful tale of praise. It can highlight the darkness too. If you want another example of this, check out our Series 7 interview with Trinidadian author Kevin Jarrod Hussein. 
And finally, if you have an underlying message you'd like to communicate to your listeners, don't feel you have to explicitly state it at all times. Show your audiences what you want them to see. Don't tell them. Let them come to their own conclusions. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. You can also sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Grouch Show Club in London. Titled Inside Stories, these events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.